Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced by that fellow whose picture is on our website, looks like he's on his way to his bar mitzvah, Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network, the program True Crime Uncensored, I am the legendary Burl Bear, man over there. Howard Lapidus. Yeah, we ought to have an on-air bar mitzvah for Matt. <laughs> I think we should have an on-air bris for him. Yeah, I'll take one week and we'll, we'll take an hour and we'll have a bar mitzvah. I know a, I know a rabbi or two. Yeah, you do, so, so do I. Yeah, yeah so there you go. They, they won't admit it. We'll teach you all the Hebrew and, and, and you'll, you'll be a fine, fine. No he knows it already. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Then the only Hebrew he knows. All his voting patterns will change. <laughs> Mark C.G. Boyer, I'm pointing at him over there. He's our fact checker. They should have, uh, they could have used you, Mark, on the case we're going to talk about today because there were any facts were uh, thrown out the window on this one. John Ferret. Hey, bro. Hi, John. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, I think. Yeah, that's what they all say. Oh, come on, uh, John. <laughs> you know what you're getting into. You've been here before. I don't want to hear it. That's true. Yeah. Why they come back on this? I don't know why they come back. It's kind of like, why did Dixie leave the dead body in the bedroom all those years? Why does John keep coming back to the show? It's, it's difficult. Why did Dixie... Yeah, well, remember, uh, was it Dixie's Last Stand? Yes. But the woman had the dead body in the bedroom for yes. 14 years or something? That's what we're going to refer back to that. All the people So, John, how come uh, all these cases uh, that you have, people are wrongly convicted? <laughs> it's not your fault, is I it? Just, well, don't buy Dixie sure as uh, how uh, wasn't uh, wrongly convicted. No, she wasn't but, wrongly uh, convicted. But you're right, you're but, right. Uh, but, uh, no, it's just, uh, it's Nebraska, too. Uh, don't forget, uh, that's that's probably part of the reason. Uh, yeah, well, I was, girl, that so. was one of my next questions, John, is what is it about Nebraska where they, they have this... I mean, there's, don't they have classes, you know, in how to solve a case? It certainly did not seem like it when, uh, when this... Uh, when this crime occurred uh, back in the late 80s, although uh, to Nebraska's credit, uh, 20 years later, the uh, the attorney general got uh, some more competent uh, and highly trained police investigators to look at this case from scratch, and they were the ones actually uh, that uh, um, turned the case upside Does down. Does it cost more money that, to uh, have qualified employees in Nebraska? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, normally, normally... Um, people that are becoming police officers get sent out. I think it's Grand Island, but uh, but they get sent out to uh, you know several weeks, if not months, of training uh, um, uh, to become a police officer. But often, especially in a state like Nebraska, you got to remember most of that state is very rural or very small towns, except for Omaha and Lincoln. So if you have a murder in a town um, or a community out in the country. Chances are the police officers that are responding don't have very much experience to begin with uh, showing up and investigating. So it's kind of like so you're stuck uh, with Barney Fife figuring out who killed your aunt. It happened in this case, that's for sure. Well, let's uh, let's give our, our loyal listeners and those who accidentally stumbled upon the program a little on the backstory here on who about this nice bingo playing uh, church going woman who gets raped and murdered. Yeah, uh, Helen Wilson is our uh, was the victim in this case and. Uh, very nice lady, uh, really well-loved uh, by the community and her family. Um, really uh, been in uh, her grandkids, and she uh, babysat at the church. But uh, um, she uh, she went to bed on uh, on uh, Tuesday night. It was battling a bad cold at the time, but goes to bed. She lives in a small 
apartment uh, building on the second floor. The next morning, her sister, who lived next door, goes knocking on the door, um, and Helen doesn't answer the door. The sister goes in there and finds Helen's body um, on the living room carpet, and she had been uh, brutally raped and uh, had been uh, murdered. And uh, the rapist had actually uh, wound um, a, a wool, a very thick winter scarf around her, her head. Um, so her body, you couldn't see her face. And uh, and the Beatrice Police Department, to its credit, the local department, they worked the case uh, pretty diligently. Um, as for the first couple years of the case, um, they did all the right things for the most part, but they were not making any progress uh, on the case, guys. Well, of course, and, when, uh, you're, when the, you're not making progress on a case, you just find someone to pin it on. <laughs> uh, and, 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 what ha- and what happens here is one of their former officers, uh, kind of a fallen officer, but a former officer from that police department uh, who uh, who went back to becoming a hog farmer. Uh, he's a hog farmer. He starts working on this investigation in his own free time. Uh, since uh, w- when you're farming uh, on the hog farm in the middle of the winter, there sure as hell ain't that much to do. So, uh, so he's out there investigating this case on his own free time and going around telling people in town that he's a private investigator. And uh, so he comes up with his own convoluted theory, you know, of how this crime occurred. And keep in mind, he was never at the crime scene, did not have access to the crime scene photos or any of the investigative files on the case, but he was out there competing, literally competing against his former police department. Well, weren't they, uh, kind of pit- weren't the they pissed about that? I mean, didn't they tell him to stand down? It, yes, pretty much. Once they got word of that, uh, they just told uh, they told people, uh, you know, uh, well, the word got out in the department. Don't you know? You're not supposed to cooperate with him or or help him out. So, uh, but but he was also doing his own. Once he he figured that out, he he wouldn't tell them what he was up to. Um, and and as time when as time passed, um, they kind of forgot about him. And uh, it just so happens, um, two years later, after the case has been unsolved now for two years, um, Bert Searcy gets hired by the rival sheriff's department. And at that point in time, the sheriff. Uh, of the town um, really did not get along at all with the small town, with the city police department. So uh, uh, long story short, Bert Searcy convinces him uh, that uh, that he knows who committed these murders, and even though he hadn't done one damn police report, <laughs> had, had never put anything down in writing during all his days of knocking on doors, you know, telling people he was a private investigator, hadn't done a lick of anything, hadn't had any uh, statements recorded. Uh, the, the leathery sheriff gives him permission uh, to uh, to uh, start working on the investigation. And they don't tell the Beatrice Police Department, the rival police department down the street that's been working this case for the last two or three, two, three, two, three years now. Well, that's just really wonderful law enforcement cooperation. <laughs> At its finest. It's uh, human nature. What are you talking um, about? So, what do you, what do you mean? It's human nature. <laughs> Hang on one second, John. Sure. What, what do you What do you mean by human nature? People are jealous. People are people are jealous. Human nature. Okay. And Thank you, Mark. You have, and, now, yeah. and now back to our guest. Back to our, <laughs> yeah. No, and that's and that, and that's true, guys. With this one, because. Uh, Bert Searcy did not like uh, some of the fellow detectives, and he did not like the longtime police chief of uh, of Beatrice. So, uh, so he really had it uh, um, out to outshine them, basically, and uh, and, and to one up them. So, uh, so he's got going out there, uh, you know, doing his own thing and not telling the sheriff's office. I'm sorry, 
telling the city police department what he's up to. And we get to about the four-year mark. This case has been unsolved now for four years. And uh, and all of a sudden, he uh, he's able to put together a couple um, arrest warrants and uh, to get on an airplane to fly down to Alabama and to fly, fly over to North Carolina to arrest the first two people that he believes uh, committed this murder. Uh, a woman named uh, Joanne Taylor, who had worked years ago out in uh, uh, the Hollywood, uh, L.A. area at a, at a strip club uh, called Coco's Bar. Oh, and then a Matt named probably jo- knows that place. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a table with Pearl's name on it at Coco's Bar. <laughs> oh, that's a Jumbo's Clown Room. <laughs> that, too. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Joseph White, who uh, was from Alabama, served in the U.S. Army for three years. And, uh, and, and Joe met uh, Joanne out in L.A. when he was working as a he was trying to make it as a nude uh, male model and uh, trying to make it in the pornography industry. And his, his name at that point uh, um, in, in the movies there that he was trying to make, he was known as Lone Wolf Bronson, Lone Wolf Bronson. So, so people started calling him uh, uh, Lone Wolf. That became his nickname and, uh, and kind of stuck with him uh, the rest of his uh, hey, hey John, you know, days and stuff. John, John, how do you know when you've made it in the male model business? Money. Probably money, I'm guessing, and uh, oh, okay. and uh, it, it, long story short, on that though, it never really these these two individuals didn't stay in 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 Hollywood for very long. I think they were out there in '83 and '84. And what happened was, Joanne Taylor had had one of her children taken away from her back in Nebraska, and she decided that she wanted to regain custody of the child, and she convinces Joe White and another uh, fella. Um, that was out there, uh, and uh, and they basically they're able to steal a credit card and to fly back to Nebraska, um, and they moved to Beatrice, Nebraska. They lived there for just a matter of several months, and and they're, they had worked in the carnival industry before that. Uh, they were always transients, kind of moving around every few months. So so they're only in Beatrice this time around for about four or five months. They skipped town right after the Helen Wilson murder. But Bert Searcy is convinced that because they left town right after the widow's murder, he's convinced that they're that they had to be involved in it. And he basically does everything he can to build this false case um, based on his own incompetence. Uh, well, wait a second. I mean, doesn't someone bother to say, excuse me, what's your motive and what's your operative? I mean, do you know what possible reason would an ex-stripper from Los Angeles and a nude male model have to do with raping some nice little lady in her apartment he he came up he came up with the, he came up with the theory on his own that this was a robbery gone bad now what's crazy what's absolutely crazy about that uh, that theory guys is that Helen Wilson had over thirteen hundred dollars in cash in her bedroom um in the top drawer at the time of her murder plus several uh, money market checks and uh, and other things she kept a lot of her money at her house so the notion somehow that multiple people went to her house, or I'm sorry, to her apartment to commit a robbery and they rape her and kill her but take none of her money. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't add up. Ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, that's what goes forward. Um, like I said, Bert Searcy convinces his sheriff, who really doesn't know anything about uh, murder cases, um, but is really looking to get reelected and, and kind of establish himself and... Uh, you know, make a name for himself, and as we talked about earlier, show up the, the city uh, police department. So well, they, these people they are totally, totally screwy. 
they absolutely and they run with this thing so uh um it, it gets a little complicated but there's some interesting characters in the in the rest of the case so so joanne taylor and Joe White get arrested, but before they're ever interviewed. I mean, basically, for <laughs> they just show up and say, "Hi, you're under arrest for a murder of someone you don't know." <laughs> for the money you didn't take. <laughs> for the money you didn't take. Yeah, right, Howard. Yeah. Th- that's that's exactly what happened here, and I lay it all out in the book. But uh, but that's exactly what happened, and uh, so Joe White is uh, is is I mean, just shocked as, as hell when uh, you know he's brought in. He first he got pulled out of his house in the middle of the night, and it's raining like cats and dogs. <laughs> So he's bare-chested, he's just wearing a pair of blue jeans, and he's trying to figure out, he's like, what, who the hell, you know, Helen Wilson? And he's like, oh, he's like was that that crime that happened, you know, and, uh, and, and, and Cersei's just really trying to drill him, and, uh, and he's like, this is crazy. He's like, he's like why would I be raping a 68, 69-year-old, you know, widow? And, uh, but nonetheless, he's arrested, and then he's questioned. And, uh, and once the cuffs are slapped on him, guys, uh, there was no going back. I mean, he was going, I should say, he, he was going back to Nebraska, no matter what. So, But wait a second, that's two people that really don't have any big connection that they get arrested. But you have six people all together who get railroaded. That's even more right, insane. So right, right. So what's going to happen in just a matter of days, once they're brought back to Nebraska, um, one, of Joe, um, one of Joe White's uh, former roommates, uh, who, had, uh, who had actually uh, uh, had some uh, uh, issues uh himself growing up he had some mental health issues but he also uh, he got involved in some other criminal activity well he was sitting in jail for a totally unrelated crime and uh and he's basically uh, uh pressed to come up with a, a bullshit story to uh to implicate these uh his, his former two friends and uh and he's thinking that uh you know it'll get him out of prison earlier so uh, he's going back and forth and his stories are crazy but uh prosecutor basically tricked him into a, a deal saying that if he uh you know if he if he ratted them out he would uh he'd be let out of jail and he was for like two days and then they uh, they charged him, <laughs> they charged this, him a, this is insane this is like something in a they, bizarro world yeah so he gets so he gets charged too yeah i mean i don't want to be talking legal stuff uh, yeah technical stuff on the show but it was called a use immunity agreement but uh, it, like i said it meant that uh, if Tom Winslow imp- implicated them, you know, and and uh, um, he didn't admit to anything himself, they would they would set him free, and he pretty much would you uh, know get a slap on the wrist. But there was kind of the catch twenty two on this: if somehow the police found evidence that he was involved, you know, then he would be uh, um, charged with the with the murder. And he'd been sitting in jail for five or six months, guys. So he just wanted to get the hell out of the, uh, jail. And uh, so he signed the damn documents, and then two days later, <laughs> he's back in custody, and now he's charged with a murder himself. So that's three. So now we got three of the six. Um, where it really gets crazy is the is the murder victim's her great niece, who was a very mentally disturbed uh, young woman um, uh, named Debbie Sheldon, and Debbie uh, had no criminal history at all, but had uh, she was borderline. Um, developmentally disabled and uh and, and what happens is uh and debbie denied that she had anything to do with the crimes years earlier but uh but they arrest her um under the belief that uh that she had uh, um told them to go to her aunt's uh, house to to commit this crime and uh and she ironically becomes the first person to plead guilty in the crime 
Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Aren't there any lawyers around in Nebraska who go, go, wait a minute? Uh, Wait, wait, no. No lawyers in Nebraska. Um, In this case, case, some of the public defenders these people had were just pathetic. And uh, and in this case, though... um, she she winds up going along with the story that somehow she had uh, committed this crime and was or I should say was a participant in the crime. And what happened, so guys, this is what's interesting in this book is that there was this real um, mischievous uh, uh, psychologist in town. Um, Wayne Price was his name, and and the sheriff and the prosecutor allowed him the moonlight as um, as a sheriff's deputy. So he's deputized as a deputy. And what happens is he gets called in on a lot of these people, and he basically tells them that they forgot about the murder. It was so traumatic and so horrific that they watched, as they watched it, he convinces them that they had a blackout, you know, and had repressed these memories because of the trauma. <laughs> this is insane. Yes, yes. So you get three of these people, three or four of them, that actually go along, you know, and he convinces them. And, and a couple of them get really teary-eyed during these interviews. And, uh, and uh, you know, one of them... One if this wasn't like, so no tragic, way. it would be a comedy. I, I know, I know. Um, especially the fact that you have three women involved in this crime. Um, and one was the lady that had lived in the apartment right above Helen uh, Wilson, our murder, the murder victim here. And, uh, and, and the thing about that was that Kathy Gonzalez, she's, I mean, she remembered that night because uh, she had watched the movie about the, the Corsican uh, uh, the Corsica brothers, uh, yes. the Siamese twins. Yeah, start the revolution and, uh, without me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so she was adamant. She's like, "There's no way I was down in the apartment below me." And uh, and and Dr. Price convinces her. He's like, uh, "We know that you probably didn't commit the crime yourself, but you probably were there watching it, and just the trauma, you know, <laughs> of getting hurt or, or bumped or injured." You know, is is why you don't remember it now. But he's like, "Well, we're not out to railroad you at all." Because she starts crying, and she's like, "You know, my life is going to get thrown away." She's like, "I don't want to go to the electric chair and stuff like that." And uh, and he tries. What they do is they convince these people, some of them, to just plead guilty to a lesser included offense, and they'll only have to serve uh, between five and ten years <laughs> of prison in Nebraska. So, uh, so that's what happens here. You get half of these people. Uh, Plead guilty, uh, fall well, over like that. I mean, there must have been someone who's going. This is insane. I object. I'm innocent. I'm not going along with this. Yes, and that was Joe White, uh, the, the aspiring, uh, you know, porn star uh, out in uh, L.A. that uh, that just was adamant that he had nothing to do with this murder. And uh, and Joe White, uh, I just couldn't believe this because he's like, you know, his lawyers are telling him, they're like, look. You know, Joanne Taylor's pleading guilty. She says that <laughs> why, she was why don't there you with be you. a good boy? Just go along with it. Yeah, um, and and you get the, these other people. There actually was a, another guy in this case uh, whose name is uh, and still is uh, James Dean. James Dean gets roped into this case too on his 25th birthday, um, four years after the fact. He was working uh, construction, um, pulls into a grocery parking lot on a Saturday afternoon. And is, is and is sworn by a by a SWAT team uh, and has no idea has no idea what the hell's going on. So, uh, um, but like I said, a lot of these people had had some mental health issues. Some of them, you know, came from a rough uh, background. Some of them came from dysfunctional families. But but by and large, you know, they were not violent, you know, murderous uh, people or rapists. But 
but they get caught up in this web, you know, and the small town prosecutors. I want to find out what well, we will find out, ladies and gentlemen, after we uh, take this uh, 60 second break. How this uh, so-called psychiatrist, psychologist gets away with BSing these people. You're listening to True Crime Uncensored. We'll be right back with John Farrick. cell phone, and I know you do because you probably got Grinder on there, but it's time for you to add another app. That app would be for Outlaw Radio through the courtesy of RadioLoyalty.com. My suggestion is that you upload that app for free, mind you. Yes, totally free app. In order to be able to listen to us, the Demons of Decadence, every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 6 Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Daylight Time, and you'll have the opportunity to listen to us smoke drink and interrupt each other, which we do a really good job of doing. So once again, RadioLoyalty.com to pick up your free app of Outlaw Radio. Once again, this is Frank. So get off a grinder and get on to Outlaw. Nice. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear. I'm taking time out of my busy schedule of interviewing John Ferrett to hype my own books because, hey, that's part of the deal. Uh, the 21st, June 21st of this year, that's the exciting day that uh, you can actually receive Murder in the Family, the first ebook edition of my New York Times best-selling book from before you were born. But we've, we've recycled the super hits. Yes, it's a, it's a brand new edition with some snazzy new words that I made up to stick on the end so you think you're getting a real bargain. And it is a heck of a deal. <laughs> And so it'll be, it's of course available in paperback from Kensington. Brand new ebook from Wild Blue Press, and soon as an audiobook also. That's Murder in the Family. Of course, you're cordially invited to buy A Taste for Murder by Burl Bear and Frank C. Gerardo Jr. and add it to your collection of true crime books you're proud to own, even if you don't read them. Uh, so buy all my books, you'll love them, and you'll leave them sitting on the shelf. But as long as I get the royalty checks, that's fine with me. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Back oh. to True Crime Uncensored I've heard of with Burl Bear. And Howard Lapidus and Mark C.G. Boyer and John Barrick, the man who And wrote... Howard Lapidus. He didn't write a book called Howard Lapidus, but that's always a possibility. Failure of Justice. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. Oh, there's a real failure of justice right there. This is a most bizarre story. John Farrick has the book Failure of Justice about these six people who were railroaded <laughs> in one of the most bizarre cases I've ever heard of. So you got six people being told that they committed this horrible rape and murder during a robbery gone bad where they forgot to steal anything, and they don't remember it because they're traumatized, and at least one of these guys, the guy who wanted to grow up to be a porn star, doesn't fall for it. He's saying, no, I didn't kill anybody, I wasn't there, and they say, oh, you're wrong. So how did they try to deal with this guy, John? Well, the the prosecutor is a real sly guy in this town, and, uh, and, and a real... Bigger guy, uh, kind of a bully, um, and uh, really in, was an intimidating force at that point in time, uh, named Dick Smith. And Dick Smith was uh, 
pretty much spent all his time trying to work out plea bargains in all his cases. He had a reputation for being a lazy prosecutor, but he was really incredibly arrogant and, and full of himself. So, uh, so Dick Smith's strategy always was to lean really hard on, on the defense lawyers and public defenders in town and, and bully them and intimidate them uh, to, to get plea bargains. And, and that's what he does in this case. Once he starts charging people with the murders, he starts trying to get all these defendants uh, um, to plead guilty to lesser-included offenses. And he does real shrewd deals, too. For example, with Joanne Taylor, uh, the woman, again, who had worked at uh, Coco's Bar uh, um, in L.A. Yeah, I think but, we have uh, an autographed he... picture of her on the wall here. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, it, 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 yeah. And, and, and uh, I was going to say... I'd, I'd, were we talking about uh, one of the tables being signed as well? But uh, um, <laughs> but uh, but anyway. So what happens with Joanne Taylor is that is that he uh, works out a deal with her and her lawyer, and and the deal is that if she pleads guilty to second degree murder, that that, that the prosecutor would only offer suggest that she goes to prison for fifteen years, which at that point in time meant if you get fifteen years, you'd serve seven and a half years usually. So. Uh, so, uh, but that was that was again a bunch of crap because there was no way in the world that the judge, you know, if, if who doesn't know anything about the case, but he's told somebody pleads guilty to second degree murder and in a murder of a widow that everybody in town loved and adored. There was no way the judge was going to give Joanne Taylor uh, fifteen years. So, uh, but that's what happens with a lot of these people is that uh, two or three of them very quickly. Uh, their lawyers convinced them you be- you better plead guilty, you know. Otherwise, you're what get the, the hell is chair. wrong with their attorneys? Are these the public pretenders? I mean, this is ridiculous. Well, the, some of them, some of them were in this case. Uh, a couple of them claimed that because their clients were uh, going along with the story and thought maybe they were involved, that uh, that uh, that it was in their best interest to uh, just uh, plead them guilty, you know, and uh, rather than take the risk. Of going to the death penalty, but there, but there were a couple of these attorneys were really lousy, actually, for sure. In fact, one guy actually got disbarred years later from the state of Nebraska as a lawyer. So that was James Dean's uh, public defender, who allowed him to to meet um, with that psychologist for all these quote emergency therapy sessions. Yeah, emergency which, uh, therapy to convince you you did something <laughs> you didn't do. That's exactly it, because because James Dean gets arrested, and again, this is now two months into the case. He gets arrested four years after the fact, and he's like, what the hell are you talking about, you know, that, that I was there, you know, uh, participating in this crime. And uh, and they basically sit him down in the sheriff's office, in the sheriff's office, and the sheriff pops a videotape of the crime scene. He got a copy of it from the police department down the street somehow through one of his deputies um, and, uh, and, and shows the video with the woman's dead body, you know, uh, sprawled across her living room floor. And James Dean, you know, starts crying and becomes really emotional during this uh, interview. I'm not, you know, during the session, I should say. It wasn't really an interview. But uh, but as soon as the, he gets done watching the video, um, he goes back for some additional, uh, you know, therapy sessions. And Dr. Price convinces him, you know, again, that you blacked out. You just don't remember it because it's such a traumatic uh, event. And, uh, and they also... Uh, uh, manipulated the polygraph machine too. There was a guy they used in this case. He was a retired detective. He was a pretty good detective, but as he got older, his skills were really uh, uh, diminished, and he was just looking for business and looking for work. So, uh, right. so he starts offering his services. Uh, you know, giving the county, the prosecutor, 
giving him discounted prices if he could send him more ask God truth it's, it's, it's in the book it's in his letters he wrote to the sheriff but, uh, and the prosecutor but he starts offering discounted right rates for using his polygraphs if they kept sending him more of these defendants you know to uh, to, to get polygraphed uh, for this murder case so uh, so what happened they get a bulk, that's why there were six six defendants because they got a bulk rate right well, and, and what happens is you were talking about the crappy, you know, the, the, the lawyers here. James Dean's lawyer, the one that got disbarred years later, had made a deal with the prosecutor that if his client failed the polygraph test, James Dean would have to plead guilty oh, to a charge. Yes, yes, it's in there. So uh, it really happened. And uh, so, so long story short, James Dean, you know, was taken, you know, two deputies, put him in a squad car and drive him 30 miles up the road to Lincoln, Nebraska. He meets with this retired uh, uh, Lincoln detective who runs his own business. And, uh, you know, James Dean is fidgety. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's a little arrogant because he's assured he knows that he didn't commit this murder. And, uh, and, uh, and he takes the polygraph test, um, and, uh, and Paul Jacobson uh, tells him, he's like, you absolutely failed this thing. You, you did horrible. And Dean is like, this is crazy. He's like, there's no way I was involved in this deal. So uh, it doesn't matter. He's he's he, he wants the polygraph. Uh, the deal is the deal's the deal. He's got to plead guilty. So what they do is they basically brainwash him over the next several weeks and months to the point where the guy actually does believe my, many months later that somehow he was involved in this crime. And he starts coming up with all these false stories that the cops tell him he needs to say oh, Jesus. against these other co-defendants. And, and it really gets crazy. Are any of these people that, who did this, I mean, i got to jump ahead here because it just pisses me off. Any of these ineffectual, or I guess they're very effective, I shouldn't say ineffectual, any of these dishonest, uh, un-American <laughs> people uh, who perverted justice, are any of these people facing charges? No, in fact, uh, um, in fact, uh, uh, Bert Searcy, the guy who caused this whole train wreck here, guys, uh, Bert Searcy actually is, is a corporal to this day. He's six, he'll be 68 years old this year. He's still a corporal with that sheriff's department uh, to this very day. And what's really interesting, and I go through this in the book, but, but Bert Searcy had a really interesting uh, history. Um, I mean, I hate to skip ahead on this, but, uh, but I'll throw it out there. Um, three years after he gets all these six convictions, he gets into a bar fight. Um, at the local country club with a Hispanic bartender that he didn't like. And, uh, and, and somehow they get into a fight, uh, where, uh, Bert Searcy actually gets a three month unpaid suspension from the sheriff's office over this whole deal. Um, and he quits the sheriff's office shortly thereafter to buy a liquor store <laughs> in town. Um, and he comes back in 2006, um, and, uh, gets back on the department, uh, uh, years later, and when he files his uh, job application, he falsifies it. Actually, I mean, it's, he falsified his job application. He put down that he left the sheriff's department a year earlier, so nobody would uh, ask questions about this three-month suspension that he got, where he also got busted in rank. And again, he got paid nothing for three months. So this was a real big screw-up on his part. But that's the kind of guy we're we're, we're talking about. Here. They, they all um, seem like complete bozos here. I mean, it's just like collusion. Like they're all working together to convict six people who had absolutely nothing to do. Meanwhile, the real killer's out there somewhere. I find it fascinating right. that... Mrs. Mark Boyer has a question. Go ahead, I find Mark. it fascinating that uh, our uh, protagonist here uh, thinks that our... The, uh, um, he thinks that the person he wants to convict was involved in other rapes while he was 
in the Army, mile, hundreds of miles away. Yeah, grasping at straws. Right. Oh, yes. Mark, that's a great point. You did a great job researching that because that was one of those points that just totally fell, fell off the face of the earth, that, uh, that he comes up with Joe White as his suspect on these other uh, crimes that had happened a couple years earlier when Joe White had never even come to Nebraska until the fall yeah. of 1984, just like four months before this crime had happened. Um, but that's how he even comes up with Joe White as, his, as, as the murderer, the rapist murderer in this case, uh, um, was just based on uh, a couple other crimes in that town, and uh, and he just decides Joe White seems like the kind of guy that would would be kicking in doors of old ladies, so, uh, <laughs> so he must... Uh, committed this crime so you got um, but, six, uh, so you got six people who had absolutely nothing to do with anything being told that they're guilty as hell forced to sign all sorts of bizarre agreements that are violations of the law you got the defense working with the prosecution you got a phony uh, ass uh, psychologist uh, working with the prosecutors to convince these people they did it even though they didn't and for how long have these people been in prison well um they wound up uh Let's see. This again. This case happened really quickly once it came to fruition. So um, all six people get arrested between March and May of '89. By the end of that year, all six are guilty. Um, five, ple- four pleaded guilty immediately, um, and Joe White goes to trial and is found guilty by a jury. Um, he had actually. Uh, there was a really terrible moment in the trial for him. He took the stand in his own defense, which I can't blame him for. Uh, he wanted the jury to hear that he had nothing to do with this crime. The prosecutor, uh, that uh, that bully, Dick Smith, uh, shows him a photograph, a uh, portrait of Helen Wilson. And he's like, look at that. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, who is that? And Joe White snaps back and he's like, that's just some old lady. And the, and the whole and the jury and everybody in the courtroom just totally... You know, just kind of put their head in their, you know, yeah. lap afterwards. Even even Joe and Joe actually had two real good lawyers that really worked hard for him. They were public defenders. But as they said, they're like, we were screwed going into trial based on all these other plea deals and all these people getting paraded into the courtroom. You know, even if we thought they were liars or weren't sure, you know, um, um, we couldn't do much about that. So uh, so the jury, um, I think it only took them about two to two to three hours tops. But uh, but they found Joe White uh, guilty of the rape and murder. Um, and uh, but they all go to prison in uh, January of uh, 1989, and uh, three of them three of them get out after five years. Three of them get out in '94 and '95. But uh, Joe White, Joanne Taylor, and Tom Winslow are all still sitting in the Nebraska penitentiary in 2008. And it's 2008 is when this case uh, gets flipped upside down. Yeah, how, tell us how it flipped. How did well, it flip? what happens, uh, uh, Joe White uh, um, tries to come up with any way he can to try to prove his innocence. And uh, and one of the things that he does is he just starts squirreling away his money, you know, the 25 cents or a dime that he made per hour, you know, working in the wood shop or whatever it was for all these years. And he hires a good lawyer out of uh, Norfolk, Nebraska, um, who's able to ask, uh, try to petition the court for DNA testing because there was all this evidence that was found at the crime scene that really never came into play during the trial. So um, none of these public defenders said, where's the DNA, where's the, uh, none of that stuff, huh? They actually did, but the thing was, this ha- the trial happened in 1989. Uh. So actually, right before Joe White got sentenced, right before the judge decided whether or not to give him the electric chair or life, um, 
the, the defense attorney petitioned again as a desperate effort, saying, Judge, can you hold off on the sentencing? You know, there's something called DNA, you know, that, that's starting to emerge now, and we'd like to have some of these clues tested. And the judge, and the, well, the prosecutor argued, no way, you know, it's too late. And the judge didn't know anything about DNA, so he, he, he agreed with the prosecution and, uh, you know, and sentenced uh, uh, so it's, uh, so it's Yes, yeah. Mark Boyer has another wasn't comment. This, uh, this was his third attorney we're referring to, wasn't it? Which one is that? Third? Okay. Um, he has two previous attorneys that he contacts and tries to get help before he settles on this uh, this third person that actually was able to move the case forward. I think you're right. Actually, I think you're right. He had, yeah. In in the early 1990s, there was a couple other uh, attorneys that handled some of his uh, initial appeals. But you're right. It wasn't until around uh, 2005, 2006. So, he also, on uh, so John, his, uh, his attorney that he gets, is he successful in having them run some DNA tests? Eventually, yes. Uh, he and another attorney, uh, but, uh, it was a brilliant move by the lawyers. Um, but uh, but uh, Tom Winslow got a lawyer and uh, Joe White had a lawyer, and they both petitioned the court saying, look, the whole the trial, I mean, the, the trial evidence or the trial story was that Joe White and Tom Winslow had gang-raped this, uh, this elderly widow. So they argued that, look, do DNA tests for both of these guys, you know, because uh, if one didn't do it, you know, and the other one didn't do it, then it totally shows that the prosecution's case was a bunch of crap, you know, and uh, is hogwash or whatever. So uh, so initially, one of the local judges uh, rejected this. Uh, she went along with the prosecution. Dick Smith had, uh, had argued, hey, you know, the one guy pleaded guilty. He screwed. He can't. Uh, he lost all his rights. And, uh, and, and, um, but eventually Nebraska Supreme Court agrees, you know what? These guys should get DNA tests. Uh, we'll see where it goes. You know, it may prove that they're, uh, you know, they're still the murderers, but they're able to get DNA tests uh, by the state of Nebraska. And, uh, and the DNA comes back and shows that absolutely no way that Joe White or Tom Winslow. So this this must have been kind of like a bombshell hit when the DNA comes back and says, no, it wasn't these guys. Then what Correct. Happened? And, uh, well, and, uh, so at that point in time, for, for the good of this case, actually, guys, at this point in time, Dick Smith, uh, the tyrant prosecutor, had just been defeated after 20 some years, I think 26 years in office. He got beat. Uh, people in town were just sick and tired of Dick Smith. So there's a new prosecutor in town, and Randy Rittenauer is his name. And Randy actually starts working with the Attorney General's office. Again, he, he doesn't know what the facts are, but he just knows something ain't right. So they're able to get this, they put together a task force of, of really good police officers and really experienced prosecutors from the Attorney General's office. And they start from scratch. And they basically go back and pull all these old boxes. Um, in this case, to its credit, the Beatrice Police Department, the old original agency, it saved all Thank of God. the original evidence. Thank God, absolutely. Um, the, the, the police department that, quote, didn't solve the case, but had tried really hard. But they had all this old evidence. And uh, so, so again, they start doing more DNA tests on Helen Wilson's, uh, you know, nightgown, you know, on the bed sheets, um, just to see, hey, maybe there was some other evidence that could link Joe White and Tom Winslow to the crime. And nothing's coming back. So then they start doing the same DNA test for the other four defendants, Joanne Taylor, James Dean, Debbie Sheldon, and, um, and Kathy Gonzalez. And the absolute same thing happens. They, they test like 45, I think, different pieces of uh, evidence where they knew they had DNA from them, and they sent these to several labs. 
over the course of several weeks, and and everything came back as nothing, and it came back as far as those six, and what it does come back is two people. Some of the DNA comes back to Helen Wilson, the murder victim, and some of the DNA comes back to an unknown male perpetrator that ain't, that ain't one of the Not any six. of these people. Correct. So how long does it take before the uh, after it hits the fan <laughs> that the doors open on these people? Well, um, and uh, again, all these DNA tests on these other pieces of evidence, guys, that's going on over pretty much uh, a good chunk of 2008. But it's, it's by within a matter of three months between August of 08 and November of 08, um, they're able to go back and retest all the old evidence. So thinking that uh, that maybe perhaps the Beatrice Police Department had a suspect that kind of slipped through the cracks somehow through a DNA test or I should or some type of a. Uh, you know, some type of a blood test or something like that. So they're going through the old suspects one by one, and lo and behold, they get a hit. And it comes back to one of the guys that the Beatrice Police Department was looking at uh, as a prime suspect, a guy named Bruce Smith. And Bruce Smith was a drifter. He grew up in Beatrice and uh, bounced around between there and Oklahoma City. And uh, and uh, the DNA evidence all comes back uh, um, in, in, in unbelievable fashion as far as proving that Bruce Smith was the murderer. Unfortunately, Bruce Smith could not be prosecuted, though, for the crime. That's uh, that's heartbreaking. Why couldn't he be prosecuted? It, he had died... Uh, no, that does slow he things died down. In yeah. Yeah, he died of AIDS in 1992. Uh, um, he got AIDS while he was in prison in Oklahoma for some other crimes that he was able to go on and commit uh, after getting away with this uh this yeah, well, didn't get murder. away too far. So here you got these no. six people who have just been exonerated by the DNA. Do they let them out? Um, yes, uh, um, and it's and it's interesting too. And, and I actually give the pro, or the Attorney General of uh, Nebraska a lot of credit, uh, even though even though he was. Um, I mean, as you guys know, a lot of times, a lot of these cases, it's 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 Democrats or people involved in the social justice arena that really fight for uh, for exonerations. And what was out about this case? But it actually was a conservative Republican who actually took his lumps over this case by uh, by letting these people out of prison and 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 and, and publicly um, um, demeaning you know the, the the performance of the Gage County Sheriff's Office and the prosecutor that got these six uh, convictions. So, uh, but so don't, don't, wait, so, well, what I wanted to ask is earlier, and I, you told me, but I still can't grasp it. Once they knew that these six people had been railroaded and BSed and coerced and all sorts of criminal crap going on to put these innocent people behind bars, no charges, no anything against these people whatsoever. That's correct, yeah. Do yeah, you, basically the feeling, and again, the, the task force happened really quickly as far as just um, exa- you know coming up with who did it and exonerating these six. And, and basically the feeling at that point in time was that this was was um, you know example of uh, of shoddy uh, shoddy work uh, and uh, and as the attorney general said it'll be up to the you know it'll be up to future lawsuits and stuff like that to settle to determine whether or not the criminal charges I shouldn't say criminal charges but just what should become of this but there was I talked to other people about this bill mm-hmm. and I guess the feeling was that too many years had passed to even well, the statute of limitations on framing people for murder yeah and so in this in this case, yeah, you're talking 18 to 19, actually almost 20 years. So uh, I, I know that they looked into the possibility of uh, obstruction of justice charges 
but uh, but long story short, nothing ever became of that. And uh, well, and I like remember said, when uh, when Geronimo Pratt was freed because that was a federal. I think. Anyway, he did, what, 25, 27 years in prison for a crime everyone knew he didn't do, because they all knew he framed him, including the judge. Uh, The FBI wrote him a check for whatever it was, $16 million, said, yeah, we framed you. Here, have a nice day. Here's a check. You know? Yeah. Uh, Are these people going to get rich? I mean, are they going to get a check for all the years they spent in the slammer? We should know in about a month or so. They just just went back on trial. Uh, They started their uh, civil trial... uh, this past Monday in uh, oh, in cool. Lincoln, Nebraska. So uh, it's a month long trial, and uh, um, we'll see how it goes this what time are they around. Suing? But uh, what's that? They're Mark? Suing, what are they um, suing specifically? But, no, they're not suing you, Mark. So you don't. You got to. They're not about. suing you, Mark. They should. Who but, are uh, they suing? You know, who are they suing, oh, and for how much? They're suing uh, Gage County, so the, the county uh, government that was responsible uh, for their prosecution. They're suing Bert Searcy, the lead investigator who came up with. Uh, who did pretty much all the investigation by himself on this case, uh, um, the sh- who still works for the sheriff's office, and they're suing that uh, that uh, shrink, um, oh, yeah. the Mr. Shrink, Sh- Sh- Wayne Sh- Price. Six times. <laughs> and and, uh, and they're also suing the, the estate of the late sheriff, uh, Jerry DeWitt. He died two or three years ago, uh, the former sheriff, so, uh, so his family's uh, estate is on the line as well on this whole deal. But what's really interesting, guys, uh, and this, I, don't, I don't understand why Nebraska Press really hasn't uh, covered this very much, but <laughs> yeah. Gage, County, Gage County is a county of only about 25,000 people. That county has spent more than a million dollars now in outside legal bills just to fight this lawsuit from the Beatrice Six to try to stop them from getting a multi-million dollar judgment against the county. They'd be smarter so. just to write them a check. You would think. You would think. Um, I mean, if they lose the trial, then obviously, uh, yeah, that's a m- another million dollars that they uh, they pissed away down the drain. But uh, um, but yeah, this is uh, the the civil the civil lawsuit, guys, has been going on since the summer of uh, 2009. Which brings me to a great point that I'd love to mention. Uh, the same month that the lawsuit gets filed, Bert Searcy again, he's still working at the sheriff's department. He actually writes a letter to the deputy sheriff and asks for permission to have his file his employment file purged uh, because of that bar- because of the barroom incident and it's all in my book I got the whole you know I got the exhibit and everything and ironically incredibly the deputy sheriff gave him permission no. and actually purged his his That's employment file That's what he's file. worried about he's worried about the bar fight Yes yes he was worried about the bar fight yeah so uh yeah, that reminds um, so me of, uh, I got it, uh, Howard, if Howard were awake, he would he would chide me about this, because he always teases me about bringing one of my mentions of my own books into this. <laughs> but uh, as we were mentioning, uh, the 21st uh, Murder of the Family comes out as an e-book. And Kirby Anthony, who had raped and murdered his aunt and her two little kids, uh, was also charged with kidnapping because he restrained them. And that, in Alaska, uh, comes under the heading of kidnapping. So when he's arrested, uh-huh. you know, you're charged with rape uh, and murder of a woman and two little girls and kidnapping. He goes, what's this kidnapping charge? He doesn't object to the, to them, you know, charging Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all the things, right. he doesn't say, oh, no, I didn't rape and kill people. He said, I didn't kidnap anybody. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so seriously, he was really hung up on this stuff. On this uh, this barroom fight that he got that three months unpaid suspension for back in the uh, back in uh, 1992 or 1993 uh, when that happened. So, 
It would seem to me that Nebraska and this department, I mean, the, the bad publicity over this. Of course, you're saying that the press there hasn't been giving it much coverage, which I don't understand. Uh, right. Do you think they'd, they'd want to, because you got a new prosecutor in there, they got the other people are pretty much on their way out the door if they're even around then, you'd think they'd want to clean, clean up things and say this isn't the way things are anymore, we're horribly sorry that this was done, you know, Nebraska stands for justice, we're so glad you're free, instead of fighting it. Exactly, and what happens is that the prosecutor gets ousted after one term in office. All these people that were involved in the Beatrice Six case that has something to lose in this case, they kind of rallied around uh, together and, uh, you know, and, and just started telling people, oh, these guys are really involved somehow. It just happens to be there's a seventh person involved in the oh, crime. Oh, come on. And, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, just, I mean, just go to... Just, this is just insane. Yeah, go to... Yesterday, yesterday in Nebraska, Bert Searcy took the witness stand during his trial, you know, his trial against him, and he actually testified that he believes, or wants people to believe, I should say, that seven people are guilty of this murder. Um, and what's crazy about this, guys, is that when the federal lawsuit started moving forward, the prosecutor, Dick Smith, that bully I talked about before, he testified uh, under oath that his new theory was that the Beatrice Six committed the murder, they left Helen Wilson's dead body on her floor in her living room, and then Bruce Smith, at 3.30 in the morning, because he got dropped off a block away from, by a friend, that he somehow wandered into the building because it was freaking cold out that night, and he raped a dead oh, woman's body. Oh, yeah, yeah right, and, yeah. And left, yeah. So, uh, th- and people the, are believing exactly. this crap or not? Some of them are, yes. There's, there's still, it's, it's unbelievable. The, the good cops in this case, Tina Vath, and um, and Mike Oliver, um, they 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 still live in this town. They're the ones that kind of righted the ship on this case and did great work. But they they told me for the book, they're like there still are a lot of people in town that don't believe them when they when they try to stop these people and, and, and just sit them down and say no, the Beatrice Six are all innocent. They had nothing to do with it. It was Bruce Smith who committed the crime all by himself. So it's it's just it's it's incredible for me to believe that guys. But, uh, but uh, well, you know, the, uh, that's reality. Uh, our friend, our late, unfortunately passed away, Corey Mitchell, uh, wrote the book about the, oh, yeah. the, the yogurt uh, stand murders. Uh, and at the end of his book, he says, I don't think these people did it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't uh-huh. make any sense. And he was right. They didn't do it. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Mark has another comment of if your mic's working. We'll see if we can turn it it off. is working okay. just lovely. Um, I didn't. I found all kinds of references to blood and uh, physical evidence and uh, semen and so forth, but I didn't see anything on fingerprints. How do six people yeah. wander through an apartment with all that money in it that and all of that stuff to steal, and there's no fingerprints from them? Right. Um, that's, a, that's a great point. Well, and, and the other thing along those lines, too, um, is that the, the apartment... Um, is pretty much tidy and immaculate, other than the fact that uh, there was a there was a pillow I think uh, that was thrown on the floor, or, and an ottoman was flipped over um, where the rape occurred. But but there's no all of her furniture looks normal. None of the rugs are messed up at all. I mean, to, to think that you could have six people for an hour to two hours, you know, um, um, participating in a in a gang rape of an elderly uh, woman. For that long a time, and that there's no sign of disarray, no fingerprints, 
no blood, you know, nothing, um, nothing that they left behind. God, if they would have had some uh, decent lawyers to begin with, maybe they could have stopped all this. Right. I mean, that's the thing, is that that somebody early on should have said, wait a minute, this is crap, you know. uh, um, But by the time time Joe White's uh, going to trial, he's really screwed. So. so you want a second shot, Howard? You need to move your elbow. <laughs> My elbow is on the uh, yeah on the cord. Yeah, no, it's not on the cord. Not anymore. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh no problem. But uh, but but again, Joe White's attorneys were really screwed by the time he goes to trial because they had already had all these co-defendants pleading guilty and cutting deals, and the, and and all these other lawyers were working against Joe White. Um, in his lawyer. Now, if, oh, if these so people was, win, John, if these people win their lawsuit, how much money will they get? That's still to be determined. I thought I thought I read somewhere where it could be around fourteen million dollars or so. Um, so uh, it'll. Uh, I know it'll be at least ten to fifteen million dollars. Is, is what I've been led to believe. So, it, uh, but it really will depend on, yeah, with the jury, um, what they decide is an appropriate sentence. But again, or I'm not sentence, but uh, but judgment in their favor. But you got to remember, all six of these people collectively, they lost 70 years total of their lives. Three of them lost 19 years of their lives to this murder and rape conviction. Uh, three of them lost five years each. Plus um, the, the mental well. and emotional strain. I mean, they all probably have PTSD. Mark Boyer has another comment. Um, just, a, just a point of curiosity for myself. Um, he brought, um, Joe writes a letter to a law firm that he had heard was successful in these post-conviction cases. And the um, uh, part late partner decides to go personally to the jail, the prison, to tell him he's not going to take the case. Does this ring a bell? No, no, I didn't, uh, oh, I didn't that's, uh, that's come across uh, that. There's stuff. a point where they're talking uh, together, and then the attorney says, wait a minute. There's something here. I was just curious as to what happened there, but it, you don't know. You don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I just know that by the time 2005, 2006, this Doug Stratton is is convinced that Joe White is 100 percent innocent, and he actually works it um, and convinces the, the attorney general's office, which is very you know rigid, you know, and and has a reputation for not letting anybody out of prison. But they're able to convince the assistant attorney general. To, to at least be open-minded and just re-explore this case and then come to find out which really surprised them was that the local police department, the, the original agency, also had suspicions that these, these six well, may not have been uh, guilty of the so crime. So we told the sheriff they were walking to yeah. Well, we're on. Yeah, all of a sudden, we were there I think I'm back. I'm black. I'm black. I'm proud. John Barrett, the book is called Failure of Justice, A Brutal Murder, An Obsessed Cop, some real wackos and six wrongful convictions. I say that five times fast. Yeah, do that. that hey, John, that, John, that, John, that, John, that. always a pleasure having you on the show. Buy his Thanks book. A lot. Buy several copies of it. Uh, Failure of Justice by John Farrick, who knows how to find incredible cases and writes about them brilliantly. Good luck with the book, John. Hey, uh, bro? Yeah. What's next? Next, uh, people who shouldn't be convicted of anything except smoking, drinking, and interrupting. Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence on LLRadioUSA.com.
Thank you.